just thank you that we can come together and learn of your word to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak through me, that uh, the words I speak are your words, Lord, uh, that it would reach the people it needs to reach out in this audience. Lord, that we would see your holiness and how awesome you are. So we just lift this time up before you now and we uh, just pray that you would uh, just guide us in our thought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning once again. It is good to be here and I, I've got to thank John because uh, because of John, I've been in the Christmas mood for about two months now since he uh, told me I was going to be speaking on Isaiah 6 here. So uh, being a Christmas junkie, I've been uh, enjoying the music for a while here already. So uh, that's been nice. But as we finish Thanksgiving weekend, today does mark the start of Advent. Now, some of you may use an Advent calendar to remind yourselves of Christmas and the count, you know, of countdown days because this is the Advent calendar that uh, my family used. We've used this for years and we would, uh, you know, it's got little things you can open up each door and pin it on there to remind us of what's happening in the Christmas story. And a lot of you may use that. And I think the idea of Advent ties in really nicely with the passage we're going to look at today. Now, the word Advent, I know we mentioned it in the first service, and I think one of the Sunday schools did. Uh, it actually comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. And so I actually looked up, you know that phrase, there's always an app for that? Well, I looked up, and sure enough, there is an Advent app. Um, and so I looked up on Advent.com and found this definition that they had for Advent. It said, Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf in leading them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And on this basis, they called for God once again to act for them. In the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration, while at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to the second coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. So as we gave thanks this week for all that God has done for us, and we gave thanks for all that God has provided for us, now it's time for us to turn the calendar and turn the seasons and we get to look forward to Christ's coming. We get to look forward to Christmas. And we can start counting that down. And so to do that, as John has mentioned here in the last few weeks, we're going to take this Sunday and the following three Sundays, and we're going to look at the idea of Advent or Christmas from the book of Isaiah. So if you want to get a jump ahead on today, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And I will have the verses on the screen if you don't feel like... Uh, oh, there we go. I say, by the way, thanks to the, uh, you never stop and give thanks to the uh, music team and the sound crew that do all this stuff. That they do an amazing job of getting this stuff up here. So thank you guys. Isaiah chapter 6. But before you get there and before we read the passage, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever seen one of those TV shows or movies where it starts off with a scene and you're sitting there looking at it and you're like, what? Wait a minute. What just happened? I, I don't get it. Something's missing here. And then it flashes back, and all of a sudden on the bottom of the screen you see two weeks ago, and you're like, oh, okay, it's going to take us back two weeks, and then it's going to fill in all the gaps, and then I'm going to totally understand what's going on in this scene. Well, as we look at Isaiah 6, and if you look, we've got half of this verse is actually on the bulletin. I wrote, I had Laura put this on there, she's like, are you sure that's the verse you want? Because I wanted it to be a little confusing, because we're going to have to go back two weeks, as it were, to look at this. So we're going to take that same tack. So let me read for you the last verse of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. It says, And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
Now, if I were just to read this verse and stop right here, you'd be like, what? What are you talking about? A tenth of what remains? What is this all about trees and stumps? And what is this? What or who is this holy seed? It'd be very confusing. So what we need to do is go back two weeks. We need to go back and see what's happened in Isaiah first that's going to lead up to this. And then it's all going to make sense. So we kind of have to understand what happened in the first five chapters of Isaiah. And we're really going to pay a little bit more attention to chapter five uh, because chapters five and six of Isaiah just go together. I mean, it's, it's peanut butter and jelly. They just, they, they, you, you got you to gotta do them together. So five chapters ago, two weeks ago, we had Isaiah, a prophet of the Lord. And he's telling of the conditions in which you know, God has called him to minister. And he's received a vision and he's telling of that vision to the people. And here's what Isaiah saw in chapter 1. In Isaiah 1, Isaiah found a well-nurtured and a well-loved people, but there were also a very stubborn and sinful people who had forsaken the Lord and turned their back on him. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. I think we're going to have that up there. It says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And here's the key, I think, in these verses. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So Isaiah is giving his vision or giving this message from the Lord to a people who have turned their backs on him. Isaiah goes on in chapter 2, and he proclaims why God was going to judge his people, why he was bringing forth this judgment. And in chapter 2, it mentions the sins of idolatry, of covetousness, of pride, and of exploitation of the poor. And he goes on in chapter 3. You're getting the picture here. Isaiah tells how God would judge his people. He wanted to purify them and bring him back to himself. And... He was going to take away everything that they had been using in place of God. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See, now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judea, and Judah, excuse me, both supply and support. And he goes on in verse 8. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. In verse 11, Isaiah goes on. Woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. And in verse 13, the Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. You're getting this picture. There's a, there's a judgment he's foretelling. All these sins that have been building up in Israel. And Isaiah's telling them. But in chapter 4 of Isaiah, he does tell of hope. In Isaiah 4, he talks about the branch of the Lord. A messianic title for Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. So you've got these four chapters. The problem is, the people didn't listen to him. The people ignored the message that he was bringing to them from the Lord. So we get to chapter 5, and Isaiah takes a different tack. He says, okay, well, just preaching to them didn't work. He sings them a song in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5. 
And we really want to pay attention to chapter 5, because like I said, it's really going to help us understand chapter 6. So he sings them the song about a vineyard. He sings on behalf of God about a vineyard to make his point. Listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Take note how much he cultivated and cared for this. This is really personal to the Lord. Isaiah singing about the Lord's vineyard, which if you look ahead in your Bible in verse 7, you'll see is the people of Israel and the, people, the land of Israel, the people of Judah. This is who he's singing about. This is very personal to the Lord. And what do we find in these verses? We find that God had chosen, what? The best land. He'd planted the choicest grapes. He'd readied it for a good harvest. The picture here, God had done everything he could to set up his vineyard or set up Israel for success, for fruitfulness. And being an agricultural-based society, the people would have totally gotten this picture. They would have understood what he's singing about here. So in verse 4 of chapter 5, when the question is asked, what more could have been done? The obvious answer is nothing. God had done everything he could to nurture and care for his people and to set them up for fruitfulness or success. So then the question is, why is his vineyard, why is Israel producing bad fruit? And if you look at that term, bad fruit, it actually translates stink fruit, from what I found, which I thought was a much better term, kind of pictures it out. Because what are you going to do with stink fruit? You're going to throw it out. And so that's what's left. The vineyard's not worth anything. He's got to cultivate. He's got to prune that out like a good gardener would clear out unproductive plants. And that's the picture that's going on. And we need to ask ourselves then, well, what is this stink fruit that Israel was producing? Because we would want to avoid the same thing in our lives. And to the extent it was happening in Israel, we'd want to, like I said, for the extent we could, keep it from happening in our country as well. Well, Isaiah goes on in verses 8 through 25 of chapter 5, and he proclaims six woes on the nation. He talks about six sins or uh, six sins that Israel had stubbornly continued to commit. And that is the stink fruit that we need to be aware of. So let's take a look at those six things. The first one, and you can see it on the screen, is woe number one is what we call covetousness or greed. Listen to what it says in verses 8 through 10. Uh, it starts in verse 8. Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field until there is no more room. See, the idea here is the landowners of the day, when it talks about joining house to house and field to field until there's no more room, what happened was the landowners of the day were basically trying to corner the realty market. They were trying to gather everything. They were, they were buying up all the houses. They were buying up all the fields. And they were living in lavish estates while there was nothing left for the people. They were creating almost a famine condition. Listen to what it says in verse 10. For 10 acres of a vineyard shall yield but one bath. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. It's creating a famine-like condition in the nation of Israel because of this greed and this covetousness. And so Isaiah pronounces a woe against covetousness and greed. He goes on 
in chapter 5, verses 11 to 17. And he talks about drunkenness. He says this, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Now realize, in the Old Testament, God did not say you couldn't drink alcohol. There wasn't a, a total abstinence. It was not the, 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 um, the law. But there was a law against drunkenness. And that same uh, concept was reiterated in the New Testament, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. It tells us again, it warns us of drunkenness. And Isaiah declares a woe on it. Isaiah is talking about people who are so addicted to drinking, uh, drinking alcohol that is, they're drinking all day long. Let me give you an example of this. This isn't, this isn't a, a proud part of the Bowman family history. It's not my immediate family, though. Let me make sure that's clear. <laughs> Mom and dad are listening. It's not, not the immediate family. But I had, uh, as a kid, I had an aunt and uncle that had some property up in Northern California, up, in, up near Grass Valley. And it was beautiful property, and we would go camping there often. And it was, it was a nice property. I had a good time up there. But I had several aunts and uncles and, and several cousins and second cousins that really liked to drink. And this idea of drinking all day, night, day and night really applied. I, mean, I remember one time I was, a, I think I was about four, four, maybe five years old. And I woke up, of course, before mom and dad and got out of my tent and came out. And my, one of my aunts or uncles was like, hey, Kenny, you want some orange juice? I'm like, sure. What kids are going to turn down a nice cup of orange juice? So I take the orange juice, of course, drink it and immediately then spit it out because, yes, it was laced with alcohol. I think it was uh, vodka that was in there. And they just thought this was the funniest thing to, to see a four-year-old spitting out alcohol uh, at five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. But they would drink all day long. So while we were out playing in the, in the creek and hiking and things like that, they would be at the camp drinking. And then one night, I'll never forget, um, I think it was a second cousin, somebody said, hey, you know what? Somebody needs to tend the fire. There's a log that needs to be turned. And he was so drunk and didn't even know what he was doing. He just got up with his bare hands, picked up a burning log and turned it over and put it on the fire. And then was shocked the next morning when he was in extreme pain and his arms were burned and trying to figure out what had happened. Um, that's what Isaiah is talking about. People that are so addicted to drinking, you kind of lose the ability to know what you're doing. So, God, um, so Isaiah, on behalf of God, declares a woe on this kind of drunkenness. And then in chapter 5, in verses 18 and 19, Isaiah goes on to declare a woe on what I would call God-defiers. It says this, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes, to those who say, Let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel. Let it approach. Let it come into view so we may know it. See, the idea here is he's talking about this sin is a, it, it's like a bondage. It, it first, it mentions the, like being a, a, a beast that's going to carry a cart. At first, that sin is just like ropes that are, okay, they're, they're ropes, but they could be broken. But the sin becomes so ingrained, they become like unbreakable cart ropes that you're just dragging along with you. And, and that sin, you just can't get rid of it. That's the idea he's talking about. But then I think even more, in verse 19, he mentions the mocking. They mock God. They mock the Holy One of Israel. They're daring God to come in and punish him. I mean, those are mocking words when it says, let him approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. It's defiant sinfulness. They're God defiers. And Isaiah declares a woe against that attitude and that behavior. He goes on, a fourth woe, we'll call it deception, in verse 20. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet 
and sweet for bitter. See, the idea is moral standards of the day were being reversed. They were coming up with their new de- they were coming up with new definitions of what the moral standard was. And everything that was bad is now good. And everything that was good is now bad. That's the idea that's getting here. They're deceiving people. There's a moral deception that's going on against the people. And Isaiah calls out a woe against that. And then he goes on in verse 21 of chapter 5. And he talks about pride. He says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. See, instead of talking to the Lord, instead of the leaders looking to the Lord, they looked to themselves to make their decisions. They weren't seeking God's counsel. And, God, and he pronounces a woe against it. I think uh, Romans one twenty two put it best. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They weren't seeking the Lord. They were using their pride, was letting them think they could just do it on their own. And then in verses 22 to 25, he talks about what I'll call injustice. It says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Now you might say, wait a second, that sounds a little bit like the drinking one we just talked about. And it does, but the idea here is the terms for heroes and champions, it's actually talking about leadership. Those are references to leadership. And the idea here is that there's corrupt leadership going on. The leadership is only looking out for themselves. They're only um, doing what's right for themselves, and they're not providing justice to the people. They're providing its injustice that's going on. So let me stop and ask those six woes. Covetousness or greed, drunkenness, God-defying, deception, pride, injustice. Does anybody see any of those in our land today? <laughs> yeah, I, I chuckle too because, yeah, they sh- sadly, they should all sound familiar to us. I don't think it takes much to find examples of any of these. And I think we, as a people, as a nation, need to be just as weary of the consequences of these things. Listen to what Isaiah wrote in in chapter 5, verse 25. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. That same phrase about God's righteous anger, we're going to see it three more times in Isaiah 9 and 10. I think we'll see it in Isaiah 9 in a couple of weeks when we look at that chapter. And then Isaiah goes on after pronouncing these woes, the last verses of chapter 5, verses 26 to 30, They reference the coming Syrian and Babylonian armies, which were going to take Israel and Judah captive. It's all a woe. It's it's all the, the judgment that's coming. And it's against this backdrop that we finally arrive in chapter 6. Hopefully you've gotten the picture of everything that's happened in the first five chapters. And we get to chapter 6. And if it hadn't been bad enough, chapter 6 starts off by telling us this is the year that King Uzziah had died. Now realize... King Uzziah had been in place for 52 years. And he was considered a a good king for the most part. But they were very prosperous years. The people were very, very comfortable under Uzziah's reign. And they would have wanted his reign to continue on. But now even Uzziah has died. And so it's like, oh. In, in, In modern terms, you would almost think, hey, the worst case scenario is starting to happen. The Israel of nation is a nation in crisis. And and Isaiah sees that. And let me just stop. Do you remember how Uzziah died? Anybody remember that? Think in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. Oh, good, that is up on the screen. It says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Did you catch that? Pride. 
the fifth of the woes that Isaiah had just declared was Uzziah's downfall. He tried to take on the role of priest along with being God, which was against God's laws. And God struck him with leprosy until he had died. Now realize, this message of doom and Uzziah's death and the decline of what's going on in Israel is not what Isaiah was wanting. You know, when he's proclaiming the word of the Lord, you, you would think, okay, people are going to turn. They're going to turn to the Lord. It's going to get better. But at this point, I've got to imagine Isaiah is probably sitting and going, what went wrong? Is God still in charge? This isn't what's supposed to have happened to Israel. I mean, I, I can just picture Isaiah thinking these things. How about you, though? Have you ever been at that point as well? Have you ever sat back and just said, God, what is going on? Things aren't going right in your life? Are you still there? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever been in that spot? Or maybe you find yourself in that spot now. Or maybe, some of us, we may find ourselves in that spot in the future. If you have, or if you're in that spot, or if you come in that spot, let it be a good reminder, a good opportunity to remember who God is. Remember God's full character. Because that's where we're going to find comfort. And that's what we're going to see here in the coming verses. So we jump back down to verse 1 of Isaiah 6. And although we don't know for sure that it tells us exactly that he did this, the, uh, the overriding assumption is that Isaiah, given all these circumstances, goes to the temple. This is you know, Solomon's temple, and he goes to the temple to seek the Lord. A great example for us. And he's given another vision. In Isaiah 6.1, after it tells us the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is amazing. Isaiah sees the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. And we know that it's Jesus he sees because in John chapter 12, it tells us that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah sees this majestic scene. He sees a throne, attendance. He sees the Lord Jesus on his throne, a seat of power that he is high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple, speaking of the heavenly temple at that point. Isaiah is seeing this. He's seeing a nation in crisis and a time of evil, but he's given this vision that confirms that God is still on his throne. It confirms that God is still in charge of everything. And it confirms that nothing can change that. And as we see our nation in a time of turmoil, and we see a rise of evil in our day, that same reminder is for us. God is still on his throne. God is still in charge. And nothing can change that. When we think it's going wrong, we can have a heavenly perspective. We'll see in verse 3 that it says that heavenly perspective is the whole earth is full of his glory. Now before we get to verse 3, let me just mention in verse 2, it talks about the seraphim. And this is actually the only mention of, of these creatures directly mentioned as seraphim in the Bible. Some people think that the living creatures mentioned in Revelation 4 may also be seraphim, but this is the only spot where they're actually directly called seraphim. And it's a Hebrew word that means burning ones. And these seraphim were creatures that were noted for having six wings, uh, two of which they covered their faces. I think that's, they covered their faces because they didn't want to look on the unveiled glory of God without being consumed. And with two, it says they covered their feet. And I think it's probably because they're in holy ground. And then with two wings, they could fly. 
So you've got these verse, these creatures, these seraphim. And look what it says in verse 3. And that's why I love the song that uh, John picked that we just sang. Because it goes right along with this. In verse 3, the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Of all of the attributes of God, holiness is the only one that gets repeated like this. God's holiness is amazing. Listen to what uh, Hannah said in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She declared, There is no one holy like the Lord. In Exodus 15, Moses was singing a song. And he sang, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And in 1 Peter, Peter quotes God from Leviticus, where he says, Be holy, because I am holy. And it's against this backdrop of God's holiness that Isaiah responds in chapter 5. Listen to what Isaiah says. Against God's holiness, he says, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now realize, Isaiah has just pronounced six woes on the nation of Israel. But when he sees himself in comparison to God's holiness, he declares a woe on himself. He's deeply convicted of his sin. And that brings him to a point of humble confession. But you might be saying, wait a second. This is Isaiah we're talking about. He's the prophet of the Lord. Surely he's got the cleanest lips in all of Israel. And I would say that's probably true. He probably did. But our standard isn't against other people, is it? Our standard of holiness is compared to God. And against that standard, (laughs) Isaiah saw that he was unclean. And we have to come to the same conclusion on ourselves. Now realize, unclean lips, when it talks about this, come out of an unclean heart. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 34 and 35. He says, You brood of vipers, How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings the good out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings the evil out of the evil stored up in him. Once again, Isaiah realized, compared to God's standard, the response was, woe is me. I'm an unclean lips. And we would have to come to the same conclusion. But there's also a good lesson in that for us. Before we declare a woe on other people, we better take a look at ourselves and say, woe is me, and get right with the Lord. Because as Isaiah's confession, led, his conviction led to confession, and his confession led to his repentance, that's the example for us. And here's the beautiful part of all this. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. Because notice God's mercy in providing atonement right away for Isaiah. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What a beautiful picture that is. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, tells us that he himself, Jesus, we celebrated this this morning, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you're here and you don't know the Lord as your Savior this morning, Know that your sins have been atoned for, that you can be saved. We've said this verse from this pulpit many times. Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're a Christian today, we still battle our own sinful nature, don't we? But when we sin, we have a promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. We can rejoice in God's transforming power in our lives because he wants us to be like his son. And as people who do sometimes sin, oftentimes, we still have Romans to remember. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a beautiful picture. Now back to our passage. It's only after Isaiah has his sins atoned for that he hears God's calling in his life. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, I do think there's a bit of irony in there because Isaiah is actually the only one there to answer the question. But, um, but the point is, Isaiah accepts the challenge. God has a calling for him. And Isaiah readily accepts that challenge. Listen to what D.L. Moody, next to his, in his Bible, next to this verse, D.L. Moody wrote the following. Next to 6.8, he said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. That's the response God wants from us. The question is today, are we willing to say the same thing? Here am I. Send me. Has God called you to do something? Are you willing to say, here am I, send me? There was a song in the 90s. Uh, I'll go back. I'm not going to show my age here, but 90s music. I knew that. Uh, There's a song by a guy named Al Denson, who's a Christian singer. And uh, in fact, I think he does a radio show now. But he had a song. It was a hit song called Be the One. Let me just read you the first line, and, uh, the, first, uh, the first paragraph and first chorus. It says this. Oh, sometimes it's so hard to know who is right and what is wrong. And where are you supposed to stand when the battle lines are drawn? There's a voice that's calling out for someone who's not afraid to be a beacon in the night to a world that's lost its way. Will you be the one to answer to his call? Will you stand when those around you fall to take his light into a darkened world? Tell me, will you be the one? It's a powerful question we all need to ask ourselves. Will we be the one? Well, Isaiah, having accepted that challenge, goes on in verses 9 and 10. And it says this. Uh, it's probably not the message he was hoping to have to deliver. But the, uh, verses 9 and 10 tells us, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, see with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's interesting. These verses are important verses. They're actually mentioned six times in the New Testament. Jesus quotes these verses four times in the Gospels, three times when talking about the parable of the sower, and three of the Gospels, and once when he's talking about the unbelief of Israel. Paul mentions these verses twice in Acts and in Romans. Same thing, talking about Israel's unbelief. See, the thing here, Isaiah's message, 
it was going to come, it was going to have a response in some people that their eyes were going to become more blind and their ears were going to become more deaf and their hearts were going to become more hardened and calloused. But let me clarify. God doesn't just deliberately make sinners blind, deaf, and hard-hearted. The point is being made here that as people, as we tell them the gospel, as they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, if you choose to ignore it and resist it, you're building up that blindness, that deafness, that hard-heartedness in your life. And at some point, you may not be able to receive God's truth. And that's why we need to keep telling them the truth. We need to keep making sure people hear the truth of the gospel. But we also need to be ready. We might face the same response. But God doesn't call us to worry about those results, does he? He tells us to be faithful to the message and let him be responsible for the results. And so in verse 11, I think it's kind of funny, uh, Isaiah asked the question, then I said, for how long, Lord? Now, given the negative response he's just told he's going to receive, Isaiah, like I would have, says, okay, I can deliver this message, but how long do I have to keep doing it? And God's response in verses 11, 12, you can sum it up by this. God tells him, keep telling it until my judgment on the land is complete. Keep telling it to anyone and anyone who's around you to hear it. Keep telling it until there is no one left to hear it. Keep spreading that gospel message. And it's interesting that amidst of all the gloom and doom, once again, we have hope. It's a common theme we'll see in Isaiah. Uh, There's always hope that comes through. And that covers the two weeks and takes us back to our initial verse. It takes us back to where we started this morning in verse 13 of chapter 6. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. He said it's typical of what we see in Isaiah. When all hope seems lost, and it seems like the nation may be doomed and disaster and forever, God reminds us of hope. He reminds us in verse 13 that like a tree that's cut down leaves a stump, so too God would leave a stump, a remnant, a holy seed. There would be a remnant of people that would be committed to him. Within that stump, there would be life. Although God must purify his people through the judgment, he has an overruling purpose of grace in all of this, which we saw in verses 6 and 7, included Isaiah himself. The nation would face God's judgment. They would get the punishment. But when it seemed like all might be lost, God reminds us a tenth is going to remain. He's got a chosen tenth that would remain. There is a remnant, a holy seed that would remain. And when we see the word holy seed, I I think back John mentioned it this morning, we can't help but think going back to Genesis 3.15 where God promised that from the woman's seed, from Eve's seed, there would be one who would come. The Messiah would come that would crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation. And we can't help but go there on that one. As we read in chapter 4 earlier, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone recorded for life in Jerusalem. We're reminded in Romans 11. It says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul went on in Romans and said, so I asked, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more will their full inclusion be? See, there would be a remnant that would be around that would experience everything that God always intended for His people. God's not done with Israel. There's going to be a remnant that's left. And right now, we enjoy the benefits of, you know, for most of us in here, the room would be Gentiles. We enjoy the benefits of the salvation of Jesus Christ. We have the gospel. It's available to anybody, Jew or Gentile. But it's a time we're enjoying that. And we need to uh, continue to tell that message, to tell the good news. The promise of a remnant, of redemption, of a Savior, it talks once again about what Advent's reminding us. We look forward in celebrating Christ's first coming in a manger. We look forward to celebrating Christmas. It's a great time of the year. But also, let's not forget to remember to look forward to Christ's second coming when we're going to be with Him forever. Uh, let me just, uh, if the music team wants to come up now, you can. But let me just, uh, in closing, read you a final thought from Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby, in summation of Isaiah chapter 6, wrote this. When Isaiah walked out of the temple that day, he was no longer a mourner. He was a missionary. He was not merely a spectator. He was a participant. God had equipped him to do the job. Isaiah had seen the Lord. Isaiah had seen himself. And Isaiah had seen the need. And knowing that God was on his throne, that God had commissioned him, he was ready to take that word into a darkened world. He was ready to preach the truth. And he preached it until death. What an incredible example today. As we celebrate Jesus' birth this Christmas season, and we look forward to that, let me ask you once again, let's ask you what the songwriter said. Will you be the one to take his light into a darkened world? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for just uh, this time of year when we can remember and look forward to just remembering what, what Jesus did in coming to this earth. But Lord, as we heard this morning, we also can't help but think about what he did on the cross. That the gospel is there. Salvation is there because of what Jesus did. And Lord, we look forward to his second coming when we can be with you forever and eternity. Help us, Lord, to be the one to take your light into a darkened world. And Lord, may we uh, just see the joy and the fruit of salvation come to those with whom we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we just thank you and commit the rest of our day now to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.